0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and that means it is time to talk about science and skepticism, mostly science tonight. Uh, so as always, you can find me throughout the week on my Facebook page for the show, Evidence-Based Radio. I have been posting a bunch of things. I especially posted a bunch of things this morning, including some information about that amazing uh, solar eclipse that happened, um, or lunar eclipse, I should say that happened. And, um, so yeah, uh, if you go to the webpage, you can see there's a video there. We obviously couldn't see it here in North America, unfortunately, but, um, it was apparently an extremely long eclipse. And so I'm sure there's some great video of it. And, um, there is also some information there. So definitely you can check that out during the week. I especially like to put things there that are obviously more visual, uh, since this is not a visual medium in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and so, yeah. And, of course, you can also listen to this and previous episodes as uh, podcasts. Uh, and so you can find that either on your favorite podcatcher or via the website com. Okay, so last week we talked about kind of dinosaurs and sort of anthropology, archaeology, I actually kind of wanted to continue that tonight because I already ran out of time last week to talk in depth about everything I wanted to talk about. And there's so many other things that are out there. And so I have a whole host of other new things to talk about in those two realms. Uh, And then we will uh, sort of circle back around to the big news this week, which is water on Mars. And then we will talk about something that may be a a dream revived. (laughs) And when we get there, you'll understand. Okay, but let's start tonight with really a very interesting thing about fossils themselves. And so fossils obviously take a very long time to, uh, be created. They, the animal is buried in sediment, and then it takes a very long time for that sediment to be compressed and for, uh, processes such as that compression force and also the heat that is created as those fossils get closer to, um, sort of lower in the, uh, Layers of the Earth, then those fossils are created, and it takes millions of years. However, it turns out that we can kind of fool Mother Nature and uh, make fossils in a much quicker, quicker way. Unfortunately, it didn't always work, so the originally researchers developed a way to mimic this by what is called artificial maturation. It involves a process not unsimilar to the way artificial diamonds are created. Uh, So basically, again, high temperatures and pressure. However, the problem with this is that it produces inconsistent results. Some materials fossilize well, while others would basically become a quote-unquote stinky sludge. (laughs) What we are coming to realize is that fossils aren't simply a result of how fast they rot, but rather the molecular composition of different tissues, explains paleobiologist Jakob Winther of the University of Bristol. However, it is inherently difficult to take the conceptual leap from understanding chemical stability to understanding how tissues and organs may or may not survive. However, Field Museum paleobiologist Evan Seta, had an idea as to what the missing ingredient might be. He thought it might be sediment. He suspected that the porous nature of sediment might allow for the liquids to drain, thus leaving a dry, well-preserved fossil in its stead. With the help of Tom K. of the Foundation for Scientific Advancement, Seta took samples from modern lizards, bird feathers, leaves, and resin. They used a hydraulic press to compress the samples into small tablets of sediment around three-fourths of an inch in diameter. They then placed the tablets in a sealed metal tube and heated them to around 410 degrees Fahrenheit, while maintaining pressure in the same way established for artificial maturation. The results were better than they could have expected. We were absolutely thrilled, Seda said. We kept arguing over who would get to split open the tablets to reveal the specimens. They looked like real fossils. There were dark films of skin and scales. The bones became browned. Even by eye, they looked right. The feather samples even held up to scrutiny under an electron microscope, with the fossil traces containing melanosomes, the organelles which produce and store the pigment melanin in animal cells and which gives them color. Um, And so they were also all of the fossils that they were able to create were devoid of proteins and fatty tissues in the same way as real fossils. And that is what allowed them to not become basically sludgy messes. And so they believe that adding clay allowed the substances, those proteins and fatty tissues, to leak out of the remains, and therefore they were able to create more um, stable fossils. Now, the reason this is so exciting is that carbonaceous fossils, uh, those that preserve things like tissue, um, such as skin and feathers, Those are much less common than fossils of bone or shell, as you probably are aware. Uh, Plenty of bones out there. No problem finding bone fossils, even though, again, obviously I say no problem finding bone fossils, but um, there are definitely many, many, many species for which we have very few fossils at all. And there are probably plenty of species that have lived and died on this earth for which we will never have any trace whatsoever. Uh, Especially some of the very early forms of life that didn't have any kind of bones or uh, any kind of hard parts at all. Even though we are often lucky to find sort of impressions of soft tissue, they are still vanishingly rare. When you think about the grand uh, sort of span of geologic time and how long actual, uh, beings have been on this planet. Uh, so animals have been here a lot longer than we have and the bacteria and things like that have been here a lot longer than the animals have. There's been a lot of, there's a long span of time in which life has existed which of course you know one can say it's good that not everything fossilizes because otherwise we'd have a lot of uh fossils everywhere um but anyways <laughs> learning which tissues will fossilize and how um and how that works can really help in the search for real fossils The approach we use to simulate fossilization saves us having to run a 70 million year long experiment, Seda said. Our experimental method is like a cheat sheet. We, if we use this to find out what kinds of biomolecules can withstand the pressure and heat of fossilization, then we know what to look for in real fossils. So that is a very exciting uh, bit of news. And I think it's really interesting that something so easy and simple can sometimes escape people's grasp that, you know, you need to have that, that sediment in order to complete the process of fossilization. Okay. So let us move on now and move sort of a little bit forward in time, I guess, because we were talking about very early, uh, the very, very early earth, but we're going to talk about dinosaurs again for a bit. So paleontology, a team of researchers in China and the UK have discovered the remains of the earliest known diplodocoid from Eastern Asia. For many years, paleontologists had actually believed that an inland sea separated East Asia from the rest of the supercontinent of Pangaea, and therefore sauropods wouldn't be able to have uh, gotten into that range. Researchers obviously had believed this because they hadn't found any evidence of large sauropods in this section of the continent. Uh, And so they figured there must have been some big barrier. And during this time, the barriers were mostly inland seas uh, because the uh, level of water was higher and the geography was obviously very different because this was the time when all of the continents were sort of squished together in one giant continent. And so obviously this new specimen shows that this assumption was wrong. The researchers found the remains at the Lingwu dig site. The new dinosaur has been designated Lingwu Long Shen Kui, which translates to LingQ Amazing Dragon or Lingwu Amazing Dragon. Uh, So dating has suggested the Thermines are 174 million years old, which would place them squarely in the middle of the Jurassic. This is at least 15 million years earlier than those previously found in this area. Now, this sauropod would have been around 50 feet long, uh, which is smaller than other um, diplodocids of the same era. So it may be that they were able to move into this area before that inland sea formed and then they were cut off um, and so they were different from those other diplodocoids who lived at the same time and so basically what this suggests is that the evolution of these large dinosaurs will have to be revised um, and it may be that there is a different set of circumstances in which the geography of Pangea impacted them, rather than just them being excluded from that zone. It may be that some of them were cut off and uh, evolved slightly separately. And of course, this is the second recent discovery, which pushes back the evolution of sauropod dinosaurs. So it's very interesting that we keep finding all of these great new things. And speaking of that, (laughs) another fossil, of a sauropod uh, was unearthed in the Morrison Formation, uh, which actually stretches across large parts of the Western United States uh, and includes a lot of the area of the Black Hills, which also uh, encompasses several states. And so this fossil, this set of fossils was actually discovered way back in 1998. Uh, But the problem is, is that, or I suppose it's not really a problem. The reason that it was discovered so long ago, and we're just talking about it now. Is that the area is known for being a huge repository of fossils from the late Jurassic, uh, anywhere between 155 and 148 million years ago. And so, fossils of Diplodocuses, Allosauruses, Stegosauruses, and all sorts of other dinosaurs have been unearthed here. Now, the fact that the area is so rich is actually why the bones were discovered back in 1998. Uh, These were actually found specifically in the Black Hills of Wyoming, but they are just now being described and coming to life um, for the researchers. Coming to light, I should say, uh, since they are fossils. And so they are 13 bones, which represent a nearly complete foot of a rather large brachiosaur, uh, one that would have been approximately 80 feet long. So that's a pretty big boy there, Um, or lady. And so the bones would have created a foot that was just under three feet wide. And so that makes it the largest brachiosaur foot discovered to date. Now, there is a large caveat here, though. This is the largest one found to date. Unfortunately, we have not found any feet bones from some of the largest sauropods that we know existed, uh, such as the uh, wonderfully named Titanosaur. Um, And then there's also, um, I believe it's Argentinosaur. uh, And those guys were just, mind numbingly big. And so if we found their foot, their feet, it would probably be bigger than this one. But since this is the one we found, it gets to hold the prize for now. And uh, part of the problem with that with feet is that they actually aren't often uh, fossilized. They tend to, well, uh, end up falling off of the skeleton and end up not being fossilized with other parts, and so it's actually kind of rare to find uh, an almost complete set of foot bones. It very likely is a type of brachiosaur, the kind that got famous in Jurassic Park and then got horribly murdered in Fallen Kingdom, uh, Femke Halwerda, a study author and paleontologist at the Bavarian State Collection of Paleontology and Geology. Uh, told Gizmodo. The only problem is that feet can rarely be diagnostic down to the species level, hence the assignment to brachiosaur and not to any specific species. Now, another thing that was interesting is that that these fossils were actually found pretty far north. Uh, That was really interesting to the researchers as well. This brachiosaur showing up in Black Hills in Wyoming brings up some questions, said David Burnham, a paleontologist at the University of Kansas who worked on the paper. It is a different species than the... Is it a different species than the Brachiosaurus down south? Or maybe they were just migrating north to south. It's several hundreds of miles from where we thought these guys were. So we have a lot of new questions. It's great. I welcome the new questions and opportunities for further research, which of course is the quintessential distillation of good science, which is that when you find a new problem, it's not something to despair over. It's something to basically jump for joy over because everything that we learn is better. It make it brings us closer to knowing what is really true, quote unquote, um, and we can have long philosophical discussions about the idea of what is or is not, or can there even be something that is considered to be true. But um, I like to spend most of my time in the sort of concrete world where things that we know are quote unquote true, just they're true. You know, when you drop something, it falls towards the center of the earth. That is a true statement. Um, And I just... Sometimes it's fun to sort of get into the weeds about uh, epistemology and philosophy, but a lot of times I think that it is more important to stay with the idea that things can be true uh that you really do exist and things like that, because otherwise you end up kind of falling backwards and backwards and backwards until you get to solipsism and then Why even bother? Um, So, anyways, total uh, aside there. Let us move on now to the realms of anthropology and archaeology. So, I just found this story today and I thought it was really interesting. Uh, New research suggests that Neanderthals were able to use fire or to make fire by striking a piece of pyrite against a flint tool called a biface. Now, pyrite, uh, often called fool's gold, is a yellow mineral that creates a spark when struck by certain kinds of material. And so it's been well known that Neanderthals used fire, um, but how they procured that fire has been up to some pretty spirited debate. The general idea was that Neanderthals did not make their own fire, but were dependent on natural fires caused by lightning strikes, said lead author Andrew Sorensen, an archaeologist at Leiden University in the Netherlands. They would have collected flaming sticks to light their own fires, which they kept burning at all times and were even able to take with them as they moved around. This idea now appears to be incorrect, at least among some younger Neanderthal groups. And by younger, they mean closer to modern times, obviously. Now, Sorensen and his colleagues found both macroscopic and microscopic mineral traces on 50,000-year-old bifaces from Neanderthal sites in France. I recognize this type of wear from my earlier experimental work. These are traces you get if you try to generate sparks by striking a piece of lint against a piece of pyrite, he noted. Now he also He also notes that you can actually see percussion marks in the shape of the letter C as well as parallel scratches along the length of the biface in the polished mineral surface. Now they actually conducted some more experiments, so they actually did some experimental um, actions where they tried to recreate the wear pattern uh, using alternative scenarios such as grinding pigment or sharpening other tools and they found that those did not give them the kind of success that they got from striking the pyrite in order to create sparks. Being able to make their own fire gives the the Neanderthals much more flexibility in their lives. It's a skill we suspected, but didn't know for sure they possessed. That they figured out bashing two rocks together could produce a brand new substance, fire, completely unlike the parent materials, gives us new insights into the cognitive skills of Neanderthals. It shows Neanderthals possessed similar technological capabilities to modern humans, even though they sometimes behaved differently. And that's one of the most fascinating things about uh, this sort of information is that it really is a mystery as to exactly why Uh, modern Homo sapiens ended up as kind of the winner takes all uh, species that has survived into the modern world. And why is it that these other species of hominid who seem to have very similar uh, abilities in many ways, why they died off uh, and are now only found both in Archaeological and anthropological remains, and in traces in our genetic uh, history. Um, You know, it's clear that part of what we might have been good about is that we might have basically been good at sort of pulling in the genes from these other hominids and taking some of the best bits. Uh, But it's still really, really fascinating to think about how it is that we ended up as the sole species of hominid and that we didn't end up having more than one, uh, species given how many different ones were available. And that had been living for very long times on the earth. Okay. Let's move a little bit forward in time. And so this next story is about a thousand year old handprint, uh, from a person who would have belonged to a group that is often referred to as Europe's lost people. Um, and so that would have been the Picts. And so they would have lived in um, Scotland and probably in England as well, but though they were sort of pushed out of England eventually um, and ended up in Scotland. And uh, they were one of the very early inhabitants of the uh, British Isles. So the print was found at Swandro on Rusey, one of the Orkney Islands of Scotland. The site was the host for an Iron Age settlement and was home to both Picts and Vikings. But now, due to erosion, unfortunately, Swandro is quickly washing into the Atlantic. And so it's basically been for many years a uh, sort of a site of rescue archaeology. Uh, So for the last decade, the site has been the nexus of an intense archaeological investigation. And so one of the items uncovered is a thousand-year-old stone anvil that shows a metalsmith's handprint still visible on the rock. Now, the anvil, which is in reality just a large beach stone, uh, was found in a round structure that would have once been underground. The archaeologists believe that a Pictish coppersmith would have used the small circular structure as a kind of man-made darkened cave uh, which would have allowed the smith to see the color of the metal as it was heated uh, which is the way that they were able to gauge the temperature to figure out how uh, the smithing was going or the smelting was going I should say and so the anvil is one of two found near the hearth in the structure And it shows not only the handprint, but also knee marks, which is really amazing. Um, So basically, he would be heating it up in the hearth and then be able to quickly move it to one of those two anvils. We were taking up the two stones that were used as anvils. When they were cleaned, we noticed that one of them had what looked like handprints on. Julie Bond, co-director of the dig, told the BBC. I have never seen anything like this before. It's unique as far as I know. Knowing that this is a Pictish building, I would guess the prints are somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 years old. Now, the smithy dates from between the 6th and 9th centuries, with dating conducted on soot and other materials from the site being used to determine the time frame for the find. It would have included a curving passageway uh, in order to reach the entrance, They also found a door jamb, a pivot stone, which basically is a stone with a depression that would have acted like a hinge for the door. Uh, And there was even a stone placed within the smithy to protect the hearth from drafts. We are doing all that we can to gather as much information on the site before it is destroyed by the sea, Bond reported. A handprint is so personal and individual that you can almost feel the presence of the coppersmith and imagine what it was must have been like working in there all those years ago. Now, the Picts remain a mysterious people, uh, obviously, and so uh, they were known for their metalworking and stone carving, uh, but unfortunately they didn't leave any written records of their civilization. And so what we know about them comes largely from the writings of people they fought against, uh, including the Romans. So there's definitely uh, some information we get from the Romans and uh, also the angles uh, of Anglo-Saxon fame. (laughs) And so the word picked actually comes from the Latin word picti, which means painted. And so that's one of the things that we kind of learn from the Latin Chronicles is that or the roman chronicles is that we think that they would have probably either painted themselves before going into battle or even have uh covered themselves in tattoos because there was definitely this idea that they were um would have had um, probably covered themselves in woad or tattoos or something like that um and this was something that the the romans noted and so uh hopefully excavations at swandro will continue to help us learn more about these enigmatic people, uh, who unfortunately kind of left more questions than answers about their lives. And on the other side of Europe, archaeologists in Ukraine have found another unique find. This is the remains of a young woman. Uh, She would have been between the ages of 25 and 30, and she was buried around 4,500 years ago. And what's interesting about her was that she was decorated with black markings before being buried in a barrow or burial mound. Now, the remains were excavated a few years ago by a Polish-Ukrainian team in um, Dnester, which is now in the Ukraine. While drawing and photographing the burial, our attention was drawn to regular patterns such as parallel lines visible on both elbow bones, archaeologist Danuta Zerkevich from the Institute of Archaeology, uh, Adam Mikhevich, University in Poznan in Poland. Um, (laughs) At first, we approached the discovery with caution. Maybe the traces were left by animals. However, after chemical analysis of the bones and markings, the team is prepared to report that the markings were deliberately made by another person using a substance similar to wood tar. And even weirder, the markings seem to have been placed upon the woman not only shortly after death, um, but also after the decomposition process. So the burial shows signs of having been reopened so that the marks could be added to the bones and then the bones were reassembled into the correct anatomical order and then the body was reburied. It is surprising that the procedure of decorating the bones had to be done after death and the process of body decomposition. This is clearly indicated by the location of the decoration on the bone surface and the way dye was applied, Zirkevich said. While other remains have been found with traces of tattoos, this is the first burial that shows such markings, especially post-burial. Now, interestingly, her people were shepherding nomads who would have actually traveled long distances using carts. It didn't have permanent settlements. They did, however, of course, leave behind thousands of barrows uh, from which, of course, she was one who emerged uh, they were called kurgans, um and I believe we talked about kurgans uh, recently as well um and so these are burial mounds that are basically all across the steppes of Eastern Europe and uh western um russia and so as with many cultures, burial practices were clearly extremely important to these people um but of course. The interesting thing is that like most cultures, obviously, as well, most burials that were these sort of important Kurgans were of men, Were of men, and so few women have really been excavated from such mounds. And so clearly this suggests that the woman must have been of high status in some way. But of course, we don't really know anything more than that. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of these really amazing and interesting peoples didn't leave all that much information about them behind. Um, Clearly, they should have been thinking about us in the future and, uh, you know, should have been doing a better job of uh, preserving their cultural heritage so that we could know more about them. It's very, very rude of them not to have done that. (laughs) Okay. Um, so we are actually going to move now to America, um, but actually to kind of a similar people um, to those who created Kurgans across the steppes. And so um, a 2017 excavation at Hoopton Earthworks, which is part of the complex of earthworks and mounds created by the Hopewell culture. Um, sometimes they're referred to as mound builders. Uh, there were actually several civilizations, cultures that, um, built mounds. So, um, the Hopewell aren't the only ones. Um, but there was this amazing, um, breakthrough that they had where they actually started to look not only at the mounds, but at other parts of the site there. And, um, they found some really amazing and interesting thing, things. So the Hopewell were actually a diverse group of people. Uh, They would have lived in what is now the Ohio Valley between around 100 BCE and 500 um, AD. Um, And so, or CE, I should say, I like to uh, make sure to say BCE and CE. Um, And so this would have been during the woodland period. So the name Hopewell actually comes from Mordecai C. Hopewell, uh, who was the owner of the farm on which the first Hopewell mounds were actually discovered by archaeologists, of course, discovered in giant, uh, air quotes, because of course, you know, many people already knew they were there. Um, but we always say discovered, uh, when it turns, when it becomes the time when, uh, Sort of basically white men find things, <laughs> um, but that's of course another rant for another day. Uh, and so, unfortunately, we have no idea what they would have called themselves, uh, or even if all of the groups that are sort of under this umbrella would have had a common name for themselves. Uh, as for as with most. North American uh, cultures, the Hopewell, unfortunately, did not have a written language. Um, And so we can't really know much about them other than from the material culture that they left behind. For 200 years, people have been looking at these earthworks, and for 150 years, there's been excavations at these earthwork centers. But all of that archaeology has been focused on the mounds themselves, on the visible, above-ground architecture said Brett Ruby, archaeologist and chief research manager for Hopewell Cultural National Historical Park. The exciting thing now is we've got these new technologies that are letting us look at all of these vast spaces in between those monuments. And it's revolutionizing our understanding of how these places were used. They weren't just static piles of earth. These were active places and there was a lot of wooden architecture associated with them. Shrine buildings, wooden post circles, there was a lot of architecture out there to support a wide variety of ceremonies and rituals. So these would have been very active places that were used over generations. So again, uh, we tend to have this idea that people in North America were uh, sort of these very simple uh, nomadic, uh, kind of ideal one with the earth kind of hippie sort of, uh, Native Americans. Um, but you know, there were actually several very complex cultures in, uh, North America. Uh, one of the, uh, most famous that you may not have heard of, um, because it's very famous, but still that's you know, in relative terms because people don't tend to think about these things um, other than, for instance, Chaco Canyon in the Southwest. But um, one of the peoples who uh, would have come from this, uh, who would have sort of followed after the um, Hopewell were uh, the Mississippians. And one of the great structures from that period is Cahokia, which is, I believe in Ohio, but don't hold me to that. Um, and Cahokia is a giant complex. I mean, it's basically equivalent to, um, you know, some of the ruins in, um, Central and South America. The only thing is that it's not made of, uh, you know, stones that were moved and carved. It's made just from earth and earthen works, but there are giant platforms that were built there. And, um, just really amazing things would have happened there. And, um, and so this was a really big and thriving and uh, very well connected civilization. And so we just because we didn't have uh, sort of monumental stone structures in North America doesn't mean we didn't have uh, native peoples with complex cultures. And so, in fact, we know that the Hopewell uh, traded widely. So we find remains of shells and shark teeth that come from uh, what is now the uh, Gulf of Mexico, uh, pipestone from Minnesota, volcanic glass from Wyoming, and silver that would have come from Ontario, Canada. So they clearly had a very complex and uh, far-reaching society. They created complex and beautiful crafts from these materials, including animal effigies and stone pipes. Uh, but around 500 BCE, uh, the Hopewell's trade routes began to fail. Um, and so basically, they um, they would have actually sort of begun to sort of break up and uh, they ended up sort of abandoning these monumental structures. And they actually ended up coming into uh, larger, more fortified villages. And uh, so something clearly shifted. There was some sort of political shift. There was some sort of, uh, you know, external uh, shifting of other native peoples in some way, that sort of broke down those trade routes, broke down that cultural uh, connection. And so these people then moved to different um, ways of living, much like uh, the Maya, for instance. Uh, You know, basically, at some point, the Maya just kind of abandoned that kind of Maya civilization. And the people are still there. They just kind of left and went into the jungle or went into the mountains and, you know, formed sort of small villages that didn't have anything to do with monumental building and super uh, sort of hierarchical uh, governmental systems. They just kind of faded out and uh, they didn't, they just faded out of those places. Uh, And so they didn't fade out of history, they just faded out of that uh, mode of civilization. And so much like uh, that is what happened here. And so actually, we find that the uh, populations actually grew after this period. So uh, even though they weren't creating these amazing monumental structures anymore, they were still doing pretty good for themselves. Um, They started to grow more corn, Um, the bow and arrow was introduced into that area. And so um, even though the culture that created the mounds ceased to exist, uh, those people still seem to have continued to flourish in the area um, for many many years um, and I just want to say it would would have been five hundred um c e not b c e um, so they were there from about one hundred b c e till about five hundred uh c e so I just misspoke before and I wanted to catch that um okay So we have talked extensively now about, uh, lots of other really interesting and new information, um, about people in, uh, people and dinosaurs and all sorts of great things from the past. We are going to take a break and then we are going to talk about water on Mars. So hang on for just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lilly Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lillylibrary.org. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Markowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires, and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. And I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis call the national suicide prevention lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Okay, we are back. And so, yeah, let's talk about this water on Mars, because it's definitely something that people are talking about. Um actually, sorry, I wanted to, I wanted to finish up a little bit, um, about the, um, the hope. Well, I'm sorry about that. I missed a little bit of my notes. Uh, and so, but I think this is really important. Um, and so basically what they looked at was, um, ground pen, um, um, magnetometer arrays and so basically it's similar to uh, ground penetrating radar and uh, basically we've been using that for years in archaeological sites so basically what it does is it uh, these are different methods for sort of seeing what's underneath the um, underneath the surface without actually um, having to dig it all. And so basically what they found were these amazing large formations. Uh, There was a giant circular formation as well as a uh, large rectangular formation. And so the circular formation actually ends up having, um, it ended up having uh, post holes all around it. it. And so this is clearly a sign that there was uh, a ceremonial center here, that this was part of a complex culture. It turns out to be North America's largest woodhenge is what we think we've discovered, uh, Ruby said. And so it's really very cool and fascinating. And so, yeah, these were very, very, um, you know, complex people with complex uh, rituals and complex building. Uh, And unfortunately, just it was mostly in wood. And so because wood doesn't preserve we don't think about it, um, as much as we do these stone structures we see elsewhere, both in the Americas and obviously in other parts of the world. Um, but it again does not mean that the people here were simple or didn't have complex cultures. It just means that they didn't build with the same materials that last a really long time. And in fact, a lot of uh, Native American cultures in North America, uh, That was on purpose because they believed that there really wasn't a need to kind of change the landscape in that way. Um, And so they wanted things that could basically um, sort of return to the earth. So they used wood and things like that instead of building uh, stone buildings, which they absolutely would have been capable of doing. And so, yeah, um, sorry about that. I am going to now turn to uh, liquid water on Mars. And so obviously the search for water has been a big deal uh for both NASA uh ESA which is the European Space Agency and all sorts of people. And so um this this discovery was actually made by a uh European Space Agency um uh explorer And so the lake was detected by the Mars advance radar for subsurface and ionics and ionospheric sounding, uh, Marsis for short. (laughs) And that is aboard the Mars express orbiter, which was launched by, uh, ESA in 2003. And so they do think that it is a lake of what is most likely liquid water. Um, and, uh, it would be basically extremely cold and extremely saturated with uh, salts. And so unfortunately, it's an unlikely place to find life. Uh, We have greatly expanded our understanding of where life can survive over the last few decades, uh, but we're still pretty sure that this might be a little bit too far. But the thing is, That with these initial findings, uh, the ESA and NASA and others can begin to look uh, more closely for bodies of water beneath the surface planets, um, the planet's surface, which may be more hospitable to life. And of course, we know that water once flowed on the planet uh, billions of years ago, uh, and we know that there's water trapped in the polar ice caps uh, and in subsurface ice deposits. But until now, we hadn't really found any evidence of true water. So Marsis has been mapping these subsurface ice deposits, and basically the way that they do it is that Marsis beams pulses of radio waves onto the surface of the planet, And listens for reflections. Some of the waves bounce off of the surface and others penetrate, uh, some of them almost two miles below the surface of the planet. And so sometimes those reflections uh, show sharp transitions in the ground's composition. Basically, uh, so going from things like ice to rock, there's there's a very distinctive difference in the returns you get from those two things. So, after several years of surveying, Mars' scientists began to see small bright echoes beneath the south polar ice cap. These returns were so bright that they could not be ice uh, but must be in fact some form of liquid water. Now at first, the results were actually dismissed uh, because they didn't show up consistently on each pass of the orbiter but The researchers then looked at what the orbiter was doing. And so it turned out that there was actually an algorithm used by the spacecraft's computer that was erasing some of the data by basically smoothing out the data information contained in each pixel. Um, So it was basically uh, diffusing some of that brightness because it was running an algorithm. We were not seeing the thing that was right under our noses, says Roberto Erosi, a principal investigator uh, for Marsis at the Italian National Institute for Astrophysics in Bologna, and so the team was actually able to commandeer a uh, memory chip from the Mars Express in order to store the raw data um, as the orbiter flew over this south pole region. So. Uh, they wouldn't have it going all the time, but every time it was sort of going across this critical area, they would sort of kick it in so that they could get that raw data. And so data from between 2012 and 2015 showed 29 returns for these bright patches, with the brightest being a 12 mile wide patch lying almost 2.5 miles below the surface of the planet in a region called Planum Australe. And so in order to support the evidence um, from these radar hits, the team also looked at the permittivity of the material. And so basically, permittivity is the ability to store energy in an electric field. Now, they're not able to measure this directly, but they can take pretty good educated guesses. And we know, for instance, that water has a high permittivity. And it turns out that this region has higher permittivity than any other point on the planet that they've surveyed. Now, of course, as is usual in these sorts of situations, not everyone is 100% on board. Um, I would say the interpretation is plausible, but it's not quite a slam dunk yet, said Jeffrey Plott, the other Marsis principal investigator, uh, who is actually at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, Pasadena, California, but who is not associated um, with the study. Now, the key problem is that there isn't really a good reason why there would be liquid water there, and especially on the planet, but even there. Um, So on Earth, subglacial lakes, which is what this would be comparable to, are formed by intense pressure from the ice above and geothermal heating from the interior. On Mars, there's no geothermal heating. The core is geologically dead. Uh, there is nothing going on. There's no um, rotating uh, metallic core the way that there is on Earth that creates all sorts of great things like the uh, um, our uh, electrical fields and things like that that protect us, uh, the magnetosphere, that's what I'm searching for, uh, that protect us from things like, you know, horrible radiation from the sun. Mars doesn't have any of that. And also, its gravity is weaker, so the amount of ice above the lake shouldn't be sufficient to reduce the melting point of the water either. Orosi believes that the key is the perchlorates uh, that have been found on Mars. These salts could be lowering the ice's melting point sufficiently uh, when combined with the pressure in order to create this liquid water. But again, even if this is a salty lake hiding below the surface, the intense cold estimated at around uh, negative 90 degrees Fahrenheit um, combined with the high salinity would not be terribly hospitable to life. And of course, there is the problem of radiation bombardment, bombardment, which uh, completely desiccates the uh, surface of the planet, but might be less of a problem that far down. Um, and so the big thing here is that it suggests that there might be water hiding elsewhere. That's the real key. Um, because if we could find water further, uh, towards say the equators where it might be a little bit warmer, that might be able to have, uh, some liquid water that might possibly sustain some sort of bacterial life. But again, this is going to be back. Material life it's not going to be uh you know little green men uh as much as we would all like to have alien uh friends, possibly as long as they you know weren't terrible and awful, and there's so many ways it could go bad, but anyways, I know that it's great to think about not being alone in the universe, but um yeah, not gonna happen anything other than microbes if we're extremely lucky. And if Mars has managed to keep them somehow, even though it is pretty much from all that we can tell, a pretty dead planet. Okay. We will have to talk about, uh, colliders next time, uh, since we are out of time, please do stay tuned for, uh, civil politics coming up next. They are actually going to be having a special guest, so it should be very interesting, um, I will catch up with you next week. Have a good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.